since dying is a part of living, in facing death, we can begin to live fully. That was Dr. Ira Bayok, American palliative care physician, thought leader, and advocate for palliative care. He's also the best-selling author of The Four Things That Matter Most, and his latest book, The Best Care Possible, is available too. We chat about a whole range of topics, including his philosophical approach to dying, whether we should rebrand palliative care, the role of privatization in healthcare, and lots, lots more. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Ira, welcome to the podcast. We're excited to see you and chat today. I'm excited to see you too. Hi, Ira. How are you? Hi, Sian. Hi. <laughs> so Ira, so much of your writing over your career, including in your most recent book, The Best Care Possible, talks about the challenges we face as a society to die well, and this resistance of the public to this approach or this idea of palliative care. Why do you think that is? Thanks for having me, and what a great question to start with. Um, dying remains a hard sell. <laughs> There's inherently difficult. It has, you know, challenges and 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 physical distress and loss and suffering baked into it. Um, and uh, and the resistance to dying or even denial of dying continues to be reinforced by the mainstream medical community, in part for some very good reasons, in part because treatments of late stage illness have gotten progressively better. I mean, look what's happened in heart failure and, and, uh, and now in advanced cancer care, targeted immunotherapies, oh my heavens. And, and that's, a, that's a really good thing. But as I like to point out, you know, since we have yet to make even one person immortal, at some point in time, more disease treatment does not equate to better care. So I think the cultural challenge, I think on an individual level, the, the counseling challenge for those of us in palliative care is to somehow integrate not just dying comfortably, but this notion of life completion um, and relational completion within our notion of full and healthy living that simply includes a period of time we call dying. I mean, so much of what you said, Ira, connects to where we met recently in Montreal um, at the International Palliative Care Congress where we were uh, you know, on, a, on a panel together talking about the idea of rebranding palliative care and whether the language is scary perhaps for the public, patients and families, and if there would be benefits of changing our name. So what are your thoughts? Like, shouldn't we, should we just change our name to supportive care? You know, whatever you call it, if it requires dying to get into it, it's, there's gonna be resistance. You know, and instead we have to look at not caring for people at the end of life, but caring for people through the end of life. Um, I think I emphasized it during our, our the session that we had uh, that um, 
it, you know, if I meet you and I, and I say, hi, I'm Dr. Bayak and our, I and our team are, are wanting to care for you and give you the best care possible at the end of your life, um, the best I can hope for is that somebody says to me, you know, wow, you know, that's great. Nice to meet you. We'll call you when we get there because we ain't there now, right? But if, if I meet you and say those same things and we're here to give you the best care possible through the end of life, the answer is likely to be, wow, can we start today? Because mm -hmm. there's, you know, that's like the avocado without a pit. Why not start now, you know? Um, but I think in, in hospice care, certainly in the United States, hospice painted itself into a corner by, by completely restricting itself to people who not only are dying, but have to acknowledge that they are dying and usually give up treatments designed to help them live longer, you know, that's a really tough sell. Mm -hmm. Whereas palliative care, we're still figuring out whether we're going to avoid painting ourselves into the da same darn corner. Mm -hmm. And instead of being for people who are dying, being for people who happen to be mortal and are living with a serious illness, mm -hmm. right? To support them and their family to live as fully as well as possible through the course of the illness, whether they get better and live longer without illness or whether they ultimately die with illness. It's a, it is a, it, maybe it's too subtle uh, a shift, but I think it's a critically important shift in our orientation. And if we do that, I really don't care what we call ourselves to be perfectly honest. Oh, I'm your number one fan. I love that. I, I love that through the end of life, not at the end of life. Um, it shouldn't be such a hard sell, huh? It seems so intuitive and um, what people would naturally want uh, this kind of care through the illness journey, regardless of whether or not it's curative or stabilizable or advancing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I have a question for you, Ira, um, and a question we get asked a lot, I'm wondering what your answer would be, um, is when does dying start? Maybe it starts when you, one observes in oneself and in, in one's thoughts and thoughts about the future that you've somehow shifted from continuing to finishing, that you start to muse about mm -hmm. what would be left undone or... Mm -hmm you know, uh, uh, how I'm going to turn things over or what I, what I should in, um, avoid forgetting in telling those who I, I love about practical matters, you know, one's passwords and accounts and where, you know, things are stashed and uh, giving away things and all that, rather than continuing to think about uh, the future in a uh, more generative sense. Um, but, you know, we're asking this in a cultural context. And in, and in certain cultural contexts, um, the, the distinction really doesn't have that much meaning. You're born, you're mortal, right? We have this one press life how are we going to make the best of it and live as fully as possible? Mm -hmm. And, 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 oh, by the way, 
um, and this is my own orientation as kind of a somebody who who leans Buddhist mm -hmm. um, to be ready to leave like that. So that there's at any given moment, there's there's not that much left undone. I really appreciate that answer. And I wasn't expecting it at all. But I, I love that. And I might even um, quote you this idea of just this natural cognitive shift that could be subtle uh, from continuing to finishing in the ways that you mentioned. I, I find that very profound um, because we usually talk about more physiologic, like, oh, you die, you, you start dying the day you're born or um, you're dying when there's nothing more we can do for you. That's the other end of things. And you're in your last hours or days or a couple of weeks. Um, or there's some point in time physiologically where your body hits a tipping point in any illness and you begin to descend and decline uh, physiologically. But I love that you took a more um, cognitive approach to it. I'm well, loving your answer. Because illness and dying are not medical. They're not physiological fundamentally. They are fundamentally personal. That's another shift. When, when I teach medical students or have residents or fellows, I hammer home that we that illness and dying are personal. They're only partly medical. And that we as clinicians mostly deal with the medical and that's fine, the diagnostics and therapeutics of the physiology and the pharmacology and the physical treatments. Perfect. That, that's good. But we're serving people for whom these experiences are profoundly personal. And once you make that distinction, it actually becomes a lot easier to serve these people because it turns out there's lots we can do even when we can't reverse the pathophysiology, right? There's yeah. lots we can do. Yeah. Um, you know, I think part of the problem is that um, when we talk about dying uh, to the public or patients, families, even other healthcare providers, uh, they are stuck in the physiologic. and and, um, you know, they are equating it with the final, final moments of life. And so it's so difficult to um, separate actively dying with living with illness, having high mortality awareness. Um, anytime you stick in the dying word, it's just everyone goes to, oh, we're talking about the very, very end of life. Um, when, sure, and we sort, and so it's another example, like we were talking about before with how language can be often be such a barrier for us. Um, when we talk about palliative or we talk about dying, or we talk about, um, dying well, or what's a good death or all these things, uh, we're often, um, very narrowly defining, you know, those concepts yes. and and answering in this very narrowly defined um, definition, unlike you, who is thinking on multiple levels with various layers that are not just physical and biological. You know, as you know, you know, with Waiting Revolution, we um, 
as we tried to go to the public and try to, we thought we could re-educate about what is palliative care and it's a palliative care approach and it make it more uh, palatable, we realized to improve the end, we had to improve the beginning. And I think exactly. what we learned was this idea of even when we talk about the best care possible through the end of life, if we just talk about the best care possible, that's really the ethos of a palliative care approach with a life-changing diagnosis. And when we're really upstream, I think we, were, we realized we think we could use metaphors in different language. And as we got later down, you know, thinking of Catherine Mannix on my shoulder here, that we really shouldn't avoid the D word and P word, and we should call it what it is and be honest with people. But even upstream, like to your point, I mean, uh, any life-changing diagnosis or, you know, for each day that we're alive, there are things happening that we, you know, if we can see what the picture is going to look like, um, we can prepare for that. And that is a, a all, you know, open uh, illness understanding and planning is a big piece of palliative care. So I just am curious to know what your thoughts are about this approach. I think they're complementary, not opposing, but we never really had a chance to uh, to chat further about that. I, I do think they're entirely complementary. I, I, um, I started to say um, that uh, most talks I give, certainly talks to the general public, I start up front by dialoguing and asking them questions, kind of to break the ice and all that, but they're all around distinguishing illness as a personal experience rather than as a medical experience. Uh, and understanding the medical as part of the personal, not the thing itself. And as you do that, uh, and it's, it's not just illness, it's illness, caregiving, dying, and grieving. When you see these as fundamentally personal and as essential parts of full and even healthy living, then we can properly use the medical in service of the personal, in service of living fully as individuals in the context of our households, the people we love, and in the context of our larger families and communities. When you make that shift, and everything becomes possible. And until you make that shift, you've got us painted into this corner of, oh, you're the folks who control pain when we're dying. Well, yes, we are, <laughs> but, but you know, that's like a small, critically important, but small part of what we're doing. And, and so, you know, uh, the best care possible is, for me, is our brand. We're providing the best care possible through the end of life, but that, the best care is, includes medical excellence, but it is fundamentally personal care. It is highly personalized. You know, when two people with the same age, gender, and diagnoses may have entirely different notions of what the best care is for them, because mm -hmm. we have to align what we do medically with what they value personally, usually based on their culture and their, you know, personal idiosyncrasies, who 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 they love and you know what their aesthetics are it's an it can be very different for two people with the exact same um medical conditions and 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 prognoses right and and that means that when you're teaching again medical students or fellows or residents you can't use you know disease treatment algorithms and get to the right answer you have to pause and come to know the patient as a person before you can 
use the algorithms and apply them in ways that are actually useful or valuable to those we're trying to serve. Ira, when you say, when you speak about, um, you know, our brand being we provide the best care possible, how would we distinct, because I agree with you, how do we then distinguish that kind of care that's provided by a palliative care specialty team, uh, specialists like yourself and, and me, uh, from the care that people should expect from all healthcare providers? Like, shouldn't that be the brand of all healthcare that we provide the best care possible? It certainly should. Um, and we would not be necessary if we trained not only every primary care provider, but every neurologist, oncologist, cardiologist, and intensivist with this notion of human beings as whole persons living within families and communities and cultures and people that not only had, as they were dying, a capacity for suffering, but also the capacity for human development and well-being. I mean, as, as I think you know, Sam, I, you know, I started uh, my training in medicine uh, thinking for sure I was going to be a rural family doc. I wanted to do cradle to grave rural family medicine. And so, and I, and I in my worldview, am a, a developmentalist. You know, people grow and they, they uh, infants and toddlers and young children and like meet developmental milestones, usually developmental crises that they have to grow through, right? You can't avoid them. You have to grow through them. And, and they become different. Their personhood evolves, but their well-being is possible at each new stage of human development. The same thing happens in adulthood. And and in um, you know, um, in illness and dying, we we meet developmental crises and we either grow through them or we suffer. We suffer until we grow through them, and our personhood changes, our expectations about ourselves, uh, our relationships with others shift. But it not, need not be pathological. It can shift in ways that are, frankly, you know, healthy. And contribute to living fully through the end of our lives. Yeah, you and I have also talked about this idea that one day we hope that healthcare gets it right, <laughs> the training gets um, reformed, so that all healthcare providers know how to provide at the best care possible through an illness until the end. And you and I have also talked about how wouldn't it be great if one day we don't need palliative care specialty teams because what we do is embedded into the skill of everyone else. Um, but we're not there yet. Um, and I'm not sure the trends are hopeful, by the way. Right. I mean, I, I think, I think I we may be getting our counseling through a, a, a chat GBT, GPT uh, bot before uh, before we train every cardiologist <laughs> and intensivist yeah. in these techniques. And, and until then, I think what, what we're doing, the three of us, is really saying, okay, well, that needle is moving very slowly. 
Um, and it's going to take decades to turn that boat, shift it at all, that we're pr pretty committed to helping citizens of the world be more um, eyes wide open about what kind of skills they require and knowledge they require to navigate an illness journey, uh, because they're not going to get the full navigation from the healthcare system. And like you said, it's not all biological and physiological. There, the illness experience has so many different layers. But I think patients and families expect that it's going to be a biomedical model as soon as they're diagnosed. And um, it's it's very it's a very narrow perspective. But yeah, so I think we're going to have more success creating a tidal wave of new in the know patients and family exactly. sooner exactly. than we're going to shift the healthcare system. We need to teach them to hope for the best and prepare for the rest. Where'd you hear that? I just, <laughs> just a thought that came to mind. Can we use that for the title of our upcoming book? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I'm glad, you know, I would, I really, I was just thinking back what you said, because I, that dying is not medical. I've heard that dying is, it, it's a social phenomenon, but you talked about it as being a personal one. And I, and I, I'm glad you, you know, you said that it's making me think differently because one of the things that we didn't get to talk about in Montreal was, you know, where our, you know, we've been talking about healthcare providers, but our, this waiting revolution is targeted at, at teaching patients and families to be more activated, to be more educated. And underneath that is communities um, and that are all committed, you know, that are, hopefully design schools and, and social supports are designed to support people to live the best life possible. And so they have right. a big role in it too, in compassionate communities and, uh, you know, neighbors and volunteer organizations, all of them also have a role. So I think there is a, a connection between hospitals and, and the social supports and community, which can support caregivers as well. But, you know, making, rec having that sort of uh, activation of patients' families to realize that they need to have a, a not be passive and and have a take a, the driver's seat in this in this journey um, is going to hopefully uh, be the catalyst we need. I mean, I know we used to think that the caregivers would be the catalyst, but after so many years, we've realized they are they're so busy being caregivers that they don't have time to to be a you know a political voice. And so, you know, really, it's all hands on deck. But I think this is where our field gets into sort of inside baseball, where we continue to, you know, talk about definitions or changing the names and trying to protect our turf a little bit, which we understand, you know, the need for, but also it, at our own detriment to some level. I think part of the tension within the field of, of palliative care within the United States certainly is um, um, disagreements about whether we have a cultural purpose at all. I think there's a number of my esteemed colleagues who disagree with me pretty strongly that we have a, a, a role in helping the culture grow the rest of the way up. That it's just about providing palliative care as a medical specialty. And whatever we call ourselves, as long as people say yes to us, that's a good thing. So call yourself supportive care or call yourself the rainbow program or whatever the heck you need to, to, to do that. And, 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 and I do strongly disagree. I think uh, it's less about what we call ourselves and more about modeling this notion of full and healthy living 
for mortal human beings. Um, so, you know, uh, I mean, you can call yourself supportive care, but if in your institution, you have to be dying to get supportive care, it, it won't be long before um, your, your, referraling, your referral colleagues say, don't say supportive care when you meet these people, because, you know, you'll scare the daylights out of them. Um, Do you think that's it's so, partly it's so ironic, by the way, I, I, I said this in Montreal, too. So ironic when the, the, the colleagues who are saying that to me are oncologists. You know, what scares a person more than saying, I'm afraid you have cancer, right? And you're saying to me, don't say palliative in the room. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I, it's, it's I, you know, I. This is just part of life. And I, I think part of what we will all be a lot happier if we can embrace the precious gift of life as a rich, wonderful, but finite gift. Let's live fully as possible, yeah. right? Yeah. Without deluding ourselves that somehow we're going to live forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You go, you go, Sam. Okay. Well, no, I was... You're reminding me uh, about, you know, when you mentioned the oncologists and, you know, I, I don't, I can't say off the top of my head what the data shows in terms of which areas of medical practice are, have a high likelihood, likelihood of burnout or um, depression, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because doctors at the end of the day are just humans, right? And we are susceptible to feelings and emotions. Um, but I do know that I've had a fair number of oncology colleagues who have suffered from depression. And I always think to myself, I wonder if some of the antidote would be to have the skills to lean in when you feel mm -hmm. like you're helpless or you feel like the patient is slipping away from you or um, you don't feel you have anything more you can offer. That's gotta feel horrible. So I honestly wonder if we were able to convince our colleagues that, you know, at bare minimum, this care feels good. It's not only what's best for the patient and family, but it's actually what's best for you as a human providing medicine uh, to know that there'll never be a time there's nothing you can do because you have your own human self to bring as a therapy when you offer honest, open, human-centered care. I think you're entirely right. And kind of the converse examples make the point so strongly. We all know a few oncologists who aren't burned out and who, whether they would articulate it in the terms that I've used or you've used, who get it that they're there to serve human beings through the course of an illness and they and in leaning in and in knowing the person as a whole person rather than just as a set of you know uh diagnoses and comorbidities and complications they can um i have to say i have to use the word they can enjoy their clinical practice because you know burnout is feeling um drained as if the metaphor of a of a of a glass that you can only drain. But when you, when you see yourself in relationship to whole persons, you also get filled up by the privilege 
and the enjoyment of that relationship. That, that's what kept me while I was doing clinical practice. That's what filled me up, right? And if I have the resources to, to care well for people, it's both draining and, you know, enriching at the same time. Um, and so, yes, I have to take some time off from, you know, I'm glad when I'm not on call on a weekend or I'm, I love my vacations, but I'm not burning out because, oh, it's so sad. Well, human life is sad, but also, you know, fabulous. You know, I, I wonder if you're like me in the sense that the things that drain you are more this kind of stuff, like not this podcast, but the constant advocacy and defining what we do and and um, convincing the healthcare system that it's a good thing, et cetera, et cetera. It's not the clinical work, even though it can be sad because of this ability to have these skills that allows us to care for people, even in the middle of suffering, through suffering. Um, it, it's all this other stuff. It's the healthcare system disease <laughs> that is uh, so so draining. I, I do think that burnout relates far more to having the resources and support within your clinical environment, your context of care to do your job well, to feel like you're giving the best care you can. And I, I think burnout really grows in proportion to the level of frustration that people, that clinicians have, that they're not able to fulfill their own clinical expectations. Mm -hmm. Our expectations in, in hospice and palliative care are that most of the people we serve will continue to get more ill physiologically and are likely to go on to die. That's factored into our career choices. But as long as we're able to give care at a level of comprehension and excellence that meets our own internal standards of, of excellence, then I, I think burnout is much less of a, uh, a risk. So many learners, when they come to do palliative care, um, they just, of course, happen upon it because it's not mandatory, at least in Canada, as part of medical training. But if they do decide to do an elective or selective, um, they always comment at the end of the day, you remind me of why I actually went into medicine, not me mm -hmm. personally, but this pally, this kind of work we did today, this, this, what we did. Um, brings me home in a way. And I've said this on the podcast before that even in the short years of medical training and residency training, which may for some people be as short as six years or could be as long as 12 years, it doesn't take long for people to forget why they went into medicine because they get sucked into the vortex of all the other cross waves of healthcare and priorities of healthcare. And it's not until they stumble upon a day in palliative care where they remember. And so there is something about being having high mortality awareness. Like you said, we come to this job knowing what we're getting into and we're able to lean in with this um, providing the best care possible that is protective as a medical provider. It's real doctoring. That, that's my term for it. This is real doctoring. You know, you're taking care of whole persons. You're taking care, you're seeing them as whole persons. They're feeling not only cared for uh, from a technical perspective, but they're feeling heard and understood. 
yeah. right? Within and the I, context, I, their lives and their families. Yeah. How much do you, how much do you think that uh, the business of healthcare and the privatization or the for-profit uh, underpinnings of, uh, of healthcare play into the way palliative care is delivered? I mean, and, and this is particularly re relevant because in Canada, especially in Ontario, we're toying with the idea of privatizing different parts, and it will not be long before palliative care gets also the same sort of look. So I'm just curious your perspectives of that, because I know, you know, you wrote an article recently about uh, how hospice and the for-profit nature of, of hospice and, and what you've seen from, you know, as an educator, but also on the ground. The profit motive is destroying hospice and deeply threatening palliative care in the United States. Um, I, I am, this is another topic to talk about, another episode maybe, but I am, are trying to reclaim hospice care from, um, mostly from the, you know, not just for profit sector, it is the investor owned you know, shareholder-owned, for-profit, publicly traded sector, and the private equity-owned hospice programs in which hospices as a business are just another business. It's not, uh, it's not immoral, it's amoral. They're just mm -hmm. a business. They're just a holding. Yeah. And in, now in the United States, about 70% of hospice programs are for-profit. Many of them are publicly traded and, and investor-owned or, or private equity-owned. And uh, boy, you can spend hours trying to figure out actually who actually owns some of the some of the uh, um, hospice companies in the United States uh, because they change hands uh, once or twice a year, and they usually track back to very large national or international uh, private equity firms. They're they're you know, I mean the the mission of hospice care has been to take the best care we possibly can of dying people, right? When you when you're publicly traded, you also have to have a second legitimate priority of giving a reasonable return on your shareholders' investments. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, that's not immoral; it's amoral. You have to. That's something you have to balance, and it's been it's been a really a detriment. And it's coming to to palliative care. We have now a number of for-profit companies that are vending palliative care services. They will data mine your insured population. They will supplement or directly provide palliative care to that population at risk of serious illness or dying. Uh, and, and again, it's not necessarily bad, but, um, but it is a far more transactional and um, rather than relational. And we're seeing things like, you know, the ratio of doctors to patients in palliative care and in, even in hospital care uh, dramatically change in, a, in the wrong direction. The ratio of, of nurses to patients in hospice care dramatically change in ways that are spreading services thin. And, and oh, by the way, burning nurses out uh, because they can't possibly meet their own uh, expectations for high quality, all of that. So uh, I, I would encourage um, you to avoid it, to resist it as much as possible. And I think in the United States, I've come to realize that, you know, this is the future. This, it's here, it's not going to go away. And so we have to double down on making 
um, standards for quality explicit, staffing expectations explicit, um, you know, guidelines for doctors, nurses, social workers, chaplains, explicit, and really tighten up quite a bit our, our standards and our accountability and our transparency so the public can choose and referring clinicians can choose not just the good from the bad, but the excellent from the merely mediocre. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we're going to have to learn to live with this situation and still provide the best care for people through the end of their lives. I was wondering for the listeners, if it's possible for you to explain very easy in an easy way, the difference between when we use the word palliative and hospice in Canada versus in the USA, and people are asking us all the time, even on my social media, they ask, because um, we use the words differently, right? So can you, can you put some words to that? Well, in the United States, hospice was the incubator of the field of palliative care, of the specialty of palliative care, which has formally been named hospice and palliative medicine in the medical specialties in the United States. Hospice as a delivery model uh, has become confined, frankly, by the insurance and mostly the Medicare governmental insurance requirements to be reimbursed as a hospice program. So while palliative care is an interdisciplinary team approach to patients with serious illness and their families to provide, you know, alleviation of symptoms, but also support for living the best care, best quality of life possible, in, in the United States, hospice is a now a subset, if you will, of palliative care that requires people to be dying. And as I said, under the Medicare requirements, not only to be dying, but to agree you are dying and to agree to forego most treatments for your disease designed to help you live longer. So it really is a confining subset of palliative care. Hospice is mostly delivered at home in the United States. There's a paucity of specialized hospice facilities. Um, and it is, is you know, mostly delivered at home again, under insurance parameters for people who are dying, usually with a six-month prognosis. Some insurance will say uh, one-year life expectancy. But I think the real um, challenge, and I think I've always thought the real problem for hospice in America is it's kind of either or. Whatever the number of months of the prognosis, it's one or the other. Right? Either you're getting treatment to, designed to help you live longer, or you're accepting that you're dying and you're focused on comfort and dying gently. And, and that tension the, that what uh, Dr. Joan Tino has called the terrible choice uh, is, is um, um, a fundamental design problem in American hospice care. Yeah, you can see how people get confused, though, like, when do I get palliative care? When do I get hospice? And what's the difference? And if Well, they're confused, because we're confused. Exactly. I mean, that's why we did the plenary. Yeah. And yeah. Montreal, our own field is confused. Yeah. 
And wouldn't it be great? Again, we're like broken records. If it just became a natural skill set so that we didn't have to keep defining it and whether or not you qualify for it or not, it's just that we all became uh, better clinicians and could lean into these situations, whatever we want to call it. We, we spend so much energy, don't we, defining it and I can't believe I even just asked you that question. So how does it differ in the U.S. and, the, and Canada? Here we go around the merry-go-round again. <laughs> we need a revolution. Oh, Make a we... waiting room revolution. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have a question that I've been wanting to ask you about, and it's connected to how different cultures view dying and palliative care. And we know hospice care came from the U.K., and the term palliative care came from Canada, and it it really has this biomedical leaning. And I really want to ask you, because I know you have experience teaching palliative care around all over North America and around the world. And so my question is really, is palliative care a westernized idea or is it acceptable and used in other cultures and religions? I don't think it's a Western thing solely at all. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, it grew up in, England and Europe and the United States and Canada. Uh, but I believe that the work that palliative care does is very well suited to many aspects, many, many places in the world. Uh, um, Africa and Asia come to mind um, where um, community um, values are stronger than individual values. I think in, in, uh, I've been thinking a lot recently about in the United States, certainly, and I think it's true for Canada, but also Scandinavia and Western Europe, that, uh, people see themselves as an, as they identify as individuals distinct from community. And in many other places, there is this predominance of people identifying themselves as part of community, it's it, that the community is integral to their their self identity, and that that I think very likely diminishes sources of suffering, of loss of dignity, or feeling a burden to others. Which I'm not sure how all that much meaning in certain Asian and you know certain tri certainly tribal cultures of of. Uh, Africa and 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 other indigenous cultures, I think uh, maybe generally. I'm speaking in broad generalities. I'm sure there are many exceptions, but but this notion that um, my dying is my dying, and and I want pain control, and then I just want to die suddenly, maybe by you know assistance in 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 uh, dying, that has far more salience when I'm an individual distinct from my community then I'm an integral part of community and, and me are indivisible. Hmm. You're a very interesting person, Ira. I know seriously, because, you know, the breadth and depth and angles you take to answer some of these questions can only come from a very wise and seasoned person who <laughs> has seen it all and has had um, the has fermented in his own career. Uh, really, there's a, 
and again, not to be patronized, but like a maturity to your answers that is so different than um, what we expect people to just how to answer these questions. I really appreciate that. And it, it speaks to how important it is for us to harness the ideas and thoughts of our colleagues, our healthcare colleagues, um, you know, when, when they have seen a lot, been part of so many different things, like there's wisdom to harness from your brain that we must harvest. <laughs> and, and hurry, because I'm not getting any younger here. So <laughs> harvest on. <laughs> So can I ask, uh, we, um, we're sort of, we're not quite at the end, but pretty close. Like, so what uh, projects and things that, that you have in the pipeline that you're excited about um, that give you hope for the future? Oh boy. Uh, I, I still want to engage the culture in growing the rest of the way up. I'm really focused on cultural maturation uh, that um, that the notion of full and healthy living extends to illness and caregiving and dying and grieving. And it's it's you know um, mostly from a well, it's all from life affirming um, perspective, but some of it is also defiant. Like, you know, um, death is the force majeure. And, and I, I'm not sure I'm death positive. I, I think death sucks, right? I do want to avoid it or forestall it. But, um, but I want to live fully and love fully um, in the face of the force majeure, right? Like, like, you can't take this from me. I love, you know, the people in my life and we're going to, you know, we're going to dance. We're going to we're going to celebrate life and relationships in the face of death, right? So there's there's a there's a healthy defiance there that I also think is part of uh, full and healthy living and maybe this cultural maturation. So I you know I have some writing I'm trying to do along these lines. I'm also frankly and you mentioned it. I worry a lot about the. Uh, uh, hospice care in America, and I'm leaning way in on this, and I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm of a certain age that I may, um, I may piss some people off, but there's there, I'm at a place where I can speak truth to power, uh, call attention to some really egregious practices, um, uh, remind my colleagues about why we're doing what we're doing. Um, highlight some basic standards of hospice and palliative care and uh, and write in ways and speak in ways that um, um, maybe even foment discomfort for the constructive purpose of improving care. Uh, you know, I feel, uh, I don't feel guilty of, of having been part of the problem because I've been railing against these, these sorts of bad practices for a long time. But I do feel responsible as somebody in the United States who was part of, you know, standing up this as field and palliative care as a field. I do feel responsible that now the uh, progeria of hospice, for instance, 
and its deterioration is still happening on my watch. And I, I, I'm not going to let it happen on my watch and stay quiet. Well, it's such an honor to talk with you uh, from your books, Dying Well and Four Things That Matter Most, which I personally have used in my life extensively. And of course, your most recent one, The Best Care Possible. All of these talk about how to transform the dying process. And that's so much of what we're trying to do here and thanking you so much for your thought leadership in the field. It's really exciting to see what else you'll accomplish. And there's just so much more to do. Yeah. So I, I keep, you know, you said, what am I working on? I just in various ways keep emphasizing the potential for human development, but the real potential for the experience of well-being even as one is dying, because I, I do think that ought to be the next big thing in Western culture, this notion that a person can actually be well within oneself during these inherently difficult, sad times of life. That's, yeah. that's, that is uh, life-changing. When my colleague, um, who unfortunately died um, at a young age, did an amazing lit review, uh, he identified that one of the three uh, domains that was woven through all palliative care or palliative approach was mortality awareness. That having mortality awareness is one of the cornerstones to being well <laughs> when you are living and when you're facing a serious illness and when you're dying. That if it's like everything you said, Ira, about just we in palliative care have a high dose of that. We know people live and die. We see it every day and we accept the fact that we too, we're not death positive, like wanting to die people, but we, we have mortality awareness. It's protective. It's not depressing. It doesn't make our mortality awareness does not dishonor hope and living well. They can run parallel to each other. In fact, work together. So if we could spread this message throughout um, citizenship and throughout healthcare, well, wouldn't it be interesting to see what happens? Since dying is a part of living, in facing death, we can begin to live fully. Yes, yes, yes. Well, that's a perfect quote to end on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ira. Well, this has been a pleasure. I, I've been looking forward to being a guest on The Waiting Room Revolution for a long time, and, and you guys did not disappoint. Oh, you didn't disappoint either. And thank you so much. Nice to see you both. Thanks for having yeah. me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join in. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shopa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza.